Welcome to the Warnings Doctor podcast with Dr. Jerry Goldhaber. Tune in to learn about what every consumer desperately needs to know in order to avoid serious injury and even death. You'll hear about ways in which consumers, government regulators, and corporations must interact to keep you and your loved ones safe. Hi, this is Dr. Jerry Goldhaber, the Warnings Doctor, and I'd like to welcome you to the very first podcast of The Warnings Doctor. I'm the author of the new book, Murder, Inc., How Unregulated Industry Kills or Injures Thousands of Americans Every Year and What You Can Do About It. I'm the Warnings Doctor, and this podcast is going to provide you as a doctor would, with prescriptions so that you can live a safer life in an ever more dangerous world. And folks, how did I become the warnings doctor, you may ask? Well, I studied the whole field of safety communications and warnings for over 40 years. Actually, it's been 42 years. I've written 11 books. The 11th is the one I just mentioned, Murder, Inc., I've testified as an expert witness over 40 years for both injured parties called plaintiffs and for defendant corporations on the defense in products liability cases where they've written warnings that I believe are adequate and should have informed the public. As a result of all of my work, CNN has asked me over the years to serve occasionally as a commentator or an analyst in stories dealing with product safety and warnings. If you go to goldhaber.com, my website, you can browse through some of the work I've done for CNN and some of the other credentials I bring to the table. Well, that's a little bit about who I am. Why am I doing this podcast? I'm doing the Warnings Doctor podcast because I am a consumer advocate for you, for your safety and the safety of your family, for your loved ones. That's why I'm doing this, to keep you and your loved ones safe and to hopefully prevent injury and death to you and your loved ones. I do this because as the warnings doctor, I know after 42 years that we are all playing with what I call a half a deck of cards when it comes to buying and using virtually any product in every aspect of our lives, whether we're eating, working, playing, traveling, whether we're healing, residing or communicating, we use products, we buy products. And when we do so, those products very often have hazards that can hurt us or sadly even kill some of us or our loved ones. Why do we play with a half a deck? Why don't we know the truth? The simple reason is that the big corporations who make these products won't tell us about the hazards. They're afraid that we won't buy their products. What does that mean? That means they're placing profit over safety. Decades ago, the CEO of Chrysler at the time was Lee Iacocca. Before that, he ran Ford. And when he was asked the question about why the Pintos and other Fords weren't safe enough, he said very cynically, safety doesn't sell. Well, friends, that sums it up. Profits over safety and nothing's changed much in the last 40 years since Iacocca said that. Another reason we're playing with a half a deck of cards is because big corporations, uh, because big government regulatory agencies won't tell us what they're supposed to tell us, which is they're supposed to hold the corporations to power and they're supposed to tell the corporations what they should warn us about and what they don't have to warn us about. Well, guess what, friends? They're not doing their job. Why aren't they doing it? 
because most of the regulators, in fact, my team has told me two thirds of all regulators from agencies like the Consumer Product Safety Commission, the FDA, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, NHTSA, EPA, OSHA, and the list goes on. Two thirds of all regulators since those agencies were created have either come from or immediately left to go to the very corporations they're supposed to regulate. That's called the revolving door. And sometimes it hits people coming and going, which isn't very good for us. And friends, the fox is not in the hen house. In my opinion, the fox has already eaten the hen house. And that's why we are playing with a half a deck of cards. But here on this podcast, you have my word as the warnings doctor. I will tell it like it is. Here you'll get nothing but the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And it's my pledge to you that after listening to each podcast, I promise you, you're going to walk away saying, Jerry, I didn't know that. Or Jerry, this could have happened to me. So let's get on with it. I'm going to structure each podcast with a section about what's new in the news today. And then I'm going to follow it with a guest. Today, we have Dr. Josh Charlin, who used to be with the FDA. And he's a fantastic guest to have on at this time because he was responsible for the protocols that the FDA required industry to follow in developing vaccines. And he's going to share that information with us. And you may be surprised as you think you might have a vaccine tomorrow. You won't. That's the truth from me to you. And Dr. Charlin will tell you why you can't have it for several months because of the clinical testing needed so that they get it right. So that's what our guest is going to be talking about today, Dr. Josh Charlin. I'm so glad that he's going to be here with us. So let's talk about something that's in the news today. What's in the news today is obviously the coronavirus. The coronavirus. Why are we as a people listening to false prophets who are giving us false hope about the future of our civilization as a result of this coronavirus. We'll survive. The simple truth is it's going to take several months. It may not be almost a year before we can get a vaccine, maybe even a year and a half. It may take several months to a year till we can get treatments for the vaccine. Scientists are working around the world feverishly to try and fix this. But make no mistake about it. Don't be fooled by false prophets who are separate. You've got to separate the wheat from the chaff. The false prophets who are giving us happy talk are giving us nothing more than chaff. We have to believe that this is a time for us to rise. Nancy Pelosi is fond of quoting Benjamin Franklin, who told us that the times now, my friends, have chosen us. They've chosen us. We didn't ask for the coronavirus, but here it is. Now we have a choice to make. What will our response be? What will our response be? As I've said before, the Greek philosopher, the Stoic philosopher Epicritus said that circumstances aren't always our choice, but we do have the choice of how we respond to those circumstances. And I'm challenging you, my friends, ask yourself, please ask yourself, because this is about us as a society and it's about us as individuals. Who are we as people? Who are we? Are we going to be those toilet paper hoarding, brawling, fist fighting over scraps of Purell in the supermarkets? Are we going to be those drunken teenagers and college students down in the beaches of Florida 
cavorting on the sands in very close proximity, only to fly home to mothers and grandparents and elderly relatives, and hopefully not, but probably many will share the virus with them. Are we going to be those kinds of individuals? Are we going to be a leader who says to us that it's only around the corner and we'll solve it all right now and we'll be back to work and we can ignore social distancing after a while? Or are we going to ser seriously consider that the pain of the short term may be worth it in the long term? That short term pain, maybe a few months, will be okay. We can do it. And maybe we'll rise to the occasion. Maybe we'll answer the times. And maybe we'll find more time to be with our children, our loved ones. Yes, there's a lot of wonderful technologies available to us as we're shuttered in our homes. But let's not make no let's make no mistake about it. Please, my friends, don't use this uh, sheltering and isolation at home as an opportunity to just play more video games and watch more movies and listen to more uh, television. In fact, one of the advice, one of the pieces of advice I'm giving everybody is the warnings doctor. My first prescription: turn off cable news. Even though I have a relationship with cable news and CNN and other places, turn it off. You don't need to watch death counts and stock market ups and downs. Talk to your children. Talk to your spouse or partner. Go for a walk. Take a hike. Ride a bike. Read a book that you've been putting off. And uh, talk to friends that you haven't spoken to in a while. Join a club. Do it remotely if you have to. I know the technology will help you, but just don't overdo the technology, both because it'll drive you nuts, it'll drive your loved ones nuts, and more importantly, it may hurt your eyes and you might get carpal tunnel syndrome from using your hands all the time on the keyboard. So my friends, the times have chosen us. Will you choose the right course? Will you choose a course that involves we? Will you choose a course that involves me? I leave that up to you as the warnings doctor because I'll write the prescriptions, but I'm not the warnings nanny, my friends. You'll have to make your choices all by yourself. I hope you make the right choices. I know I'm working hard on that myself. And this is now time for me to introduce our guest, Dr. Josh Charlin. Now for another great interview on The Warnings Doctor with Dr. Jerry Goldhaber. I'm here today with our guest, Dr. Josh Charlin, formerly with the FDA. What could be, uh, who could be a more appropriate guest to have on today's podcast than Dr. Josh Charlin? And what topic could be even more appropriate to discuss than the topic of a vaccine? This is a man with incredible credentials uh, in the background of what's required to make a good vaccine a good vaccine. We'll apply it to this situation and how long it's going to take and how safe will it be? How protected will we be? These are all questions we've all got in our mind right now as we all are in this together to fight this novel virus, COVID-19. So let's get into it. Josh, thank you for coming to my podcast, to our show, which is The Warnings Doctor, and we're concerned about safety in every guest we have. We want to talk about how to make our lives safer. As The Warnings Doctor, it's my job to provide prescriptions to help people live in a safer, healthier environment in what is now becoming an even more dangerous world. So with that in mind, Josh, tell us a little bit about your background. You've worked with the FDA. Tell us a little more about you. 
Okay, and uh, Jerry, thanks for uh, sharing your audience with me. Well, my experience begins when I worked as a drug reviewer at FDA, but for the last 25 years, I have been consulting with companies involved in drugs, biologics, and medical devices, either auditing them for FDA compliance or being a troubleshooter when a company has a, a problem with a submission or with data and uh, they need help in solving that problem, they would call on me to, to, to answer to solve their problems. And I think for me, one of the most important things is I have, I have hands-on experience with the entire uh, FDA product approval process. So I have experience with regulatory strategy, with how to design a study, with collecting data from a clinical trial, to analyzing the data, to writing up the results, to presenting that, that information to FDA. And currently, so most of my... You're a scientist, Josh. You're a yes, scientist. Yes, yes. Yeah, very much a scientist. My background is in uh, physiology and, uh, and statistics and software development. And we need and, science's opinion today more than ever. Keep going. Yeah, I agree. And uh, currently, m most of my time, I work as an expert witness with attorneys in lawsuits involving regulatory compliance, and that could be death or injury, but it could also be patents, mergers, trade secrets, and, uh, and insurance claims. Well, how did you become familiar with what people should know about vaccines from the FDA's regulatory perspective, Josh? Well, recently I completed a three-year uh, government contract where I advised senior leadership in the Department of Defense on improving their FDA regulatory compliance with the development of of what the Department of Defense calls medical countermeasures, which I would more generally describe as defense against biological weapons. So that was many products, most of which were vaccines against things like uh, Ebola, ricin, nerve gas, things that a warfighter would need to be protected, uh, protected against uh, on the battlefield. Now, Josh, I want to interrupt you and say this is a show we're devoted to science, and let's get rid of this right away. I've heard all these conspiracies being tossed about about this COVID-19 coronavirus. Is This is not a conspiracy by the North Koreans or some other hostile force, is it? Not, not to my knowledge. And, in fact, I was reading something in one of the uh, uh, science uh, communications that I get that there's no evidence that this virus has any uh, characteristics of, of a man-made uh, bioweapon. Okay, I'm glad to do that. And that's why we are talking to Josh Charlin, who is a scientist with a background from the FDA, and he knows what he's talking about, folks. Let's separate fact from fiction. There is no conspiracy theory that we need to waste our time with. So let's go on. We're talking about vaccines. This is at the top of everybody's mind. We're trying to fight this virus as best we can through social distancing and washing our hands and so on and so forth. But we also have to beef up our, 
our health approach to this, and one of the best things will be a vaccine. And we've heard Anthony Fauci, the head of the NIH's uh, uh, program on fighting uh, viruses. What should we know in the public about vaccines in general? And then let's apply that, if we can, a little later to the situation we're in now. I'm a member of the general public. I know what a vaccine is. I've had my polio vaccine. I've had, I get my flu shots every year. What is it we should know? Well, what I'd like to do is give my perspective as an FDA regulatory expert. So what I do is I work with scientists to identify the data that would be required by FDA for approval of a vaccine and to be sure that that data is collected using procedures that meet FDA regulatory requirements. For example, FDA has requirements for data security. So scientists developing a vaccine would have to have a process to ensure data security and also to document that their process is adequate. Now, I think a key thing about vaccine development is the establishment of the requirements for that vaccine. So when people say we're developing a vaccine for COVID-19, that can mean many, many different things. So you would have to, someone is answering the following questions. And question number one, how much immunity is enough? Question number two, how quickly should someone become immune? Should it be a matter of days? Should it be a, a week or more? Should it be a month or more? Now, clearly, they'll want it to be as quickly as possible, but how long is too long? Uh, number three, how long should uh, the immunity last? Uh, and another key factor is what is the age range of people that are participating in the clinical trial? Now, if you look in on the FDA website for the trial, for the phase one trial they're conducting now, they are testing it in people between the ages of 18 and 55. So if you're outside of that age range, how well the vaccine will work for you is not precisely known. Another you just eliminated how, me. <laughs> and you I'll have to say, me. and me. And change that protocol. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because clearly uh, they say the elderly are are uh, most at risk, but in, at least in phase one, they're not looking at the safety of the vaccine in someone over the age of 55. And it's clearly known that your immunity, that your ability to acquire and maintain immunity changes as you age. Another example uh, of a question to be asked is how stable should the vaccine be? Now, I'm sure they're going to be giving it very, very quickly, and they're going to be building up massive quantities of it. But how long can you store the vaccine for? Six months, for a year, five years? I mean, that's another, that's another question to be, to be asked. And with regard to these requirements, they're likely to change as, as, the vaccine, as the vaccine is developed, as they learn more about the vaccine. I think this is a, very a important. Well, this is very important because the public needs to know that there are all these important questions of how much immunity will be enough and how quickly you can get the immune and how long it'll last and so on, because... We think in the public, we're used to watching a TV show that goes 30 minutes or 60 minutes, and by the end of that one hour, we've solved the problem. The villain's been arrested. The virus has been defeated. The vaccine's been uh, developed. 
This is not something that's going to happen overnight because there are serious people looking at this from a scientific uh, approach, which raises serious questions before you can simply say, I've got a vaccine, right? Exactly, exactly. And I, I really hope that the, the, the members of the press that are asking uh, government officials about the vaccine, I really hope they ask these questions. Another factor that's very important in, in the successful development of a, of a vaccine is manufacturing. Now, not many people know this, but for a vaccine, initially you're going to, you're going to manufacture very small quantities of it because you only need enough for a clinical trial. But after you determine that, you, that the vaccine, in fact, is safe and effective, you're going to have to manufacture it in massive quantities. And you that mentioned be clinical a, trial, Josh. Let me interrupt you. What is a clinical trial, if you can? Just tell us briefly, because you said small quantities will be manufactured initially so that we can do a clinical trial. What would be a good clinical trial, an example? Well, they'll do uh, phase one, two, and three. So they're doing phase one now, which is basically a safety, uh, a test of safety. So they're giving the vaccine to healthy people in varying doses. If you listen very carefully to Dr. Fauci, he'll talk about that they're giving it in three doses. So that's what's known as dose ranging. They're trying to determine what is the most effective dose uh, or what's a safe dose. They're trying to figure out how much vaccine can I give to someone before they suffer some kind of ill effects. So that's phase one. Phase two, a phase two clinical trial is you would give the vaccine in small, uh, to a small group of people who have the, uh, the COVID-19 virus and see, see what the effect is. You know, are they, does this vaccine in fact work? Is there evidence that it works? So that might be, I don't know, that might be maybe 100 people, around 100. And then they'll go to a phase three trial where they'll test the vaccine in a much larger population, probably in the hundreds, and uh, to see to gather further confirmatory evidence that the vaccine it does in fact uh, safe and it does and does in fact work. So you're talking when you about say a works, when you say does the vaccine work? I've heard people say that the current flu uh, uh, vaccine, not for this COVID virus, not for COVID nineteen, but for the flu itself in general, they have new vaccines every year depending on what flu strains. And I've heard estimates that even in a good year, the vaccine may inoculate about half or 60% in a very good year. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, I believe that's right. And, and for a vaccine to work, it's, it's kind of an architecture issue. The, the, the uh, architecture of the virus um, has to be interfered with in, in some way. So they'll, they'll develop a flu vaccine assuming some kind of architecture or certain characteristics of the virus. And if they guess wrong, if the architecture is significantly different, then uh, the vaccine will not work. But COVID-19, they very much know the architecture of it. So that's, that's not an issue. But the, but the real issue is how much immunity will you get? And I would think that what FDA is likely to, to want to do, at least their first choice, is they'll want to run in a, in a phase three trial, they'll want to run what is known as a randomized clinical trial where they'll have um, a treated group and a control group. 
So they'll go to maybe, I don't know, maybe a, a nursing home or a city and where there's, uh, where there's uh, known that there's a lot of virus, they will um, probably test people to see if, they're, if, if they have evidence uh, uh, of, of already having the virus, and they'll take all the people who, who have shown no evidence of having the virus, they'll inoculate some people with the vaccine, and they'll inoculate some people with the placebo, and they'll see what happens. So they'll want to know, that, are, did the people we inoculate not get the virus as compared to the people that we inoculated with a placebo? Now, they may not run a, a placebo group, but um, that, would be, that would be an issue for, you know, for scientists and politicians to, um, to determine. But, I can, but I'm confident in saying that scientists would probably want to have a, uh, a control group. To be and sure that's that the what you mean by works. a double is that like a, a double blind uh, study when you're talking about having a control group right yeah uh, um yeah double blind where neither the uh, person administering the vaccine or the person receiving the vaccine knows if they're getting the, the actual vaccine or or a placebo i see now josh i've heard some words talked about in the press I wonder if you could shed some light on them. I've heard the words scaling up and comparability testing. Can you clarify what those mean for our listeners? Yes, that has to do with manufacturing. So as I explained, in a phase three trial, they might be inoculating maybe people in the hundreds. But once they decide that the vaccine or they determine that the vaccine works, they're going to they're vaccinate people in the tens of millions. So you have to. So the term that they use in FDA is you're going to have to scale up manufacturing. You're going to have to go from making doses for a few hundred people to you're going to have to be making doses for millions and millions of people. And that is a well, that yeah, they can do that, but it's a very very tricky uh, process, and it can be extremely difficult. So when you make a vaccine in small quantities. And then you try and make it up, make it in quantities that are thousands of times larger. You may not be making the same vaccine. So going from hundreds of doses to millions of doses, that's what's known as scale up. So after they scale up, they're going to have to take that vaccine that comes out of um, the manufacturing plant that's making it in the millions of doses. And they're going to have to confirm that the vaccine still works. And that's what they mean by a comparability study. You just can't automatically because, assume. Is that because uh, when they go from hundreds to millions of doses that there might be some quality control issues in the manufacturing of the virus, of the vaccine? There could be quality control issues. I mean, somehow, you know, how you, the vaccine manufacturing process, when you when you ramp it up a thousand or ten thousand times, things are going to work differently. Now, I'm sure they're going to be. I mean, there are. I'm, I know there are experts out there in scale up, but you know, in going from hundreds of doses to millions of doses. But they're still going to have to do a comparability study, and this all explains why um, Dr. Fauci says it's going to take a year or more to develop a vaccine. All of this work takes time. Now, so, the is there a role of, for the, can the military speed things up in this case? 
Well, actually, they could because the military had this exact same problem years ago when they were working with uh, private companies in the manufacturing of vaccines. And then if that private company decided that they didn't want to participate in the program any longer, that left the military with a huge problem that they have to run these comparability studies and maybe the comparability studies wouldn't work. And then they have to start vaccine development all over again. So what the Department of Defense did several years ago is they, de- they built their own vaccine manufacturing uh, facility in Florida. And I visited, it's a very large facility. Uh, I'm capable of large scale vaccine development. So they have this facility in Florida where they control everything. Uh, and if they want to use it, they, anytime they want to use it, they can use it. So it's a state of the art um, vaccine uh, manufacturing facility. So they never, they did it because they never wanted to have the problem again where um, they had to worry about switching manufacturing sites. What about FDA? Does FDA regulate the DOD's manufacturing facility if they get into the act here? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Any product that uh, – any vaccine that FDA uh, wants to administer to a warfighter has to be approved by FDA. That's reassuring. Yes, yes. And, and, I've, and I've been in meetings with the Department of Defense and, and FDA, and FDA has made it very clear that acknowledging that, yes, we're all on the same team, but our standards for safety and, and effectiveness are, are the same for the warfighter as they are for the public. So well, That's reassuring. FDA, I agree. I agree. It's reassuring. Well, your opinion of the FDA is very good then, I guess, because they have such terrific standards and so on. Absolutely. I think they're a, an absolutely uh, outstanding uh, organization. Well, uh, I'd like to know more about that with the FDA because we're going to be hearing more about the FDA and not just their standards, but uh you know, there's an old saying in medicine, do no harm. That, that's got to apply here too, right? Yeah, yeah, and this was a problem, or not a problem, this is a challenge that uh, when I was working with the Department of Defense on defenses against biological weapons, it was certain that these products were going to be given to healthy people. And that raises the, the challenge level much higher. I mean, if you're working on a cancer drug and you're giving it to people that are likely to die anyway in a few months, the safety requirements are completely different than if you're giving it to a, a, a healthy person. So it makes the it makes the challenge uh, and the problems uh, much more much more significant. And I think part of the problem that people need to recognize is that. When you're working with biology, there are, as advanced as we are, we're really not that advanced. And I remember being in a meeting with a senior scientist from FDA, and and she said something which I thought was just so spot on. She said, when it comes to large clinical trials, we really don't know why they succeed 
and we really don't know why they fail. In other words, our, our understanding of, of biological processes is still, is still not very advanced. And I think that's what makes vaccine development so difficult. So if the Army's developing a tank, for example, you know, engineers know that for every 100 pounds they add to the tank's weight, they know the miles per gallon of fuel is going to go down by some known amount. But in biology, my SUV. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, but in biology, it's completely different. So let's say, for example, you want to increase the vaccine dose by 10%. Well, what will be the effect on immunity? Will it go up? Will it be 10% quicker or, or 10% better if the dose goes up by 10%? No one knows. You're going to have to run a clinical trial to, to figure that out. So there's no formula out there like there is for, for engineers figuring out how many their miles per gallon on a ta- uh, for, uh, for an army tank. There's no formula for a vaccine that's going to predict um, what's actually going to happen when you change a parameter. So that's why they're now going you- to have to run a series of clinical trials to figure it out. Uh, this is important, Josh, because, you know, the attention span of the American public is about the same as for a gnat. You know, we've been brought up, as I said before, to expect a happy ending in a half hour or an hour at the most. The miniseries went its way on television because nobody wanted to wait that long. So I want to ask you, and this is the real key question for me and I'm sure our audience, we're in a hurry People are dying. People are getting sick, particularly in the age group that you and I are in. And we've got to wonder, is there anything the government can do? You're making a very good point about the standards, the rigorous standards and how long it might take. And we have to be patient. Well, America is not exactly known for its patience. I've seen people who have been self-quarantined for two days and they're ready to jump out of their windows right now. So... Here's the question of the day, I guess, for you. I've heard the number of people in the media talking about relaxing these standards that you are explaining that are so vigorous. The vigorous standards are so important to the development of vaccines. I've heard the word flexibility used. Now, this gets into almost like a chemical titration experiment. How much acid, how much base till we get to neutral and we win. But how flexible or should they be flexible at all in the FDA? Should they lower their standards to get a faster approval of the vaccine under the guise that it'll get it to market faster, save lives maybe, and maybe then the economy and the stock market will rebound? So this is going to be this uh, push and pull, if you will, in the country, I think. People are going to say, come on, we're America. Can't we get this done faster? It's not helpful to hear political leaders pushing like that and say falsehood. And I've said in one of my shows to beware of false prophets, no matter their station in life, who may be giving us a bunch of shaft instead of the rich wheat we deserve from scientists like yourself. So do you have an opinion on this? The word is flexible. That's the word I'm looking for. Um, should they be flexible at all? And if so, how? And does that mean lowering their standards in any way? And what will that mean for the quality of the vaccine? So we've got quality issues versus the speed of bringing it to market. Come on, Josh, tell me what to do. <laughs> okay, Gary. Well, the word flexible, <laughs> that, that's the word that you, that you might hear someone from FDA uh, use when they say they're being flexible. 
that means that they're being open-minded for ideas on how to how to demonstrate safety safety and efficacy. Now, in a super emergency like we're in with COVID-19, I'm sure there's going to be conversations uh, internally in FDA about uh, about flexibility, and there are going to be people that are going to argue that you know, we can't lower our standards at all, and then there are people that are probably going to say, well, you know, we can extrapolate from less evidence than what we typically use. So I don't know how that argument's going to turn out, how, uh, how flexible or how much FDA is going to modify their standards, but they, but they certainly will. And in fact, there was a, uh, a guidance document that just came out today from FDA talking about modifying clinical trials uh, in, in light of the, the problems and the issues with, with COVID-19. I think the, the important thing for the public to know is that when someone in FDA is using the word flexible, that means that they're, they're thinking of ways of modifying their, their usual way of doing business in an attempt to strike that balance between, well, maybe we can, maybe this evidence isn't gold plated, but maybe it's good enough for us to be sure about safety and efficacy. Cause the real, to me, the real anxiety is going to be, Holy cow, what if we release a vaccine that doesn't really work? That, you we know, don't that, want that. that. Yeah, that's what people are going to be discussing. I believe in FDA when someone talks about, well, the data is not perfect, but it's good enough. And someone's going to say, well, you want to suffer the fallout if the vaccine doesn't work. It doesn't work very well. All so, right, so Josh, you've told us some important things. We've got to keep our ears open. So the word flexible, and uh, what does that mean in terms of the standards that the FDA may or may not reduce to get a vaccine to market faster? We should pay attention to the word scale-up when they go from small studies of a few hundred to ratcheting it up to the hundreds of thousands or millions. And we look at comparability testing, the gold standard, if you will, of looking at people who are healthy and people who aren't and see if the vaccine really does make a difference. You know, the double blind gold standard of all FDA testing. We're not even the researchers or the testing people uh, or the uh, subjects of the test know whether they're getting the vaccine or not. So tell us in closing up, this is a fascinating interview. Absolutely the right test at the right time. What are the most important questions that we should leave our audience about asking about a vaccine? What are the key things, if you can sum it all up, in your opinion, that we should know? All right. The first question I would ask is, how soon will I become immune? That's really important. It's going to be days or, or, or weeks or, or, or months or more. The next question I would ask is, what is my degree of protection? How protected will I be? And uh, that would also be important. The other thing is, how will my protection increase or decrease over time? I mean, how, you know, how long, how long will my immunity last? And lastly, if they're running a study with, for, for patients in ages between 18 and 55, if you're outside of that range, the, the effectiveness is going to be less, uh, less precise. 
So what's the answer? I mean, I'm over the age of 55. How well is the vaccine going to work for me? And I think those are some uh, critical questions to ask and to be aware Josh of. Josh Charlin, Josh Charlin, Dr. Josh Charlin, you're the man to ask the questions, and you're the man that's given us some valuable information, the right guest at the right time, and that's the goal of the warnings doctor. Thank you, Dr. Charlin. Thank you, Josh, for being here today. And thank you to my audience for listening to the warnings doctor whose job it is to provide you prescriptions for leading a safer life in a more dangerous world. And, folks, I want you to remember to always become informed because the more informed you are, the safer you'll be. Dr. Jerry Goldhaber, the warnings doctor. Thank you very much. What a great guest to have on my first podcast, Dr. Josh Charlin, formerly with the FDA, an expert on why we are going to get a vaccine in about a year, the research protocols involved. Boy, how appropriate. Josh, I can't thank you enough for being my very first guest. And if you want to talk to Josh Charlin yourself directly, please look up his website, charlinconsulting.com. That's S-H-A-R. L-I-N, charlinconsulting.com is his website. And if you want to write to him personally, J. Charlin, that's J-S-H-A-R-L-I-N, J. Charlin at pipeline.com, P-I-P-E-L-I-N-E, J. Charlin at pipeline.com or charlinconsulting.com. And you can talk directly with Josh. I'm sure he'd love to hear from you. Well, I promised you, friends, you'd have a new segment, a great interview, and then I wanted to give you a little teaser from my new book, Murder, Inc. Murder, Inc., which you could buy anytime you want, at, but just by going to Murder, Inc., by Jerry with a G dot com. Murder, Inc., by Jerry with a G dot com. Unfortunately, Amazon's having a problem now with obvious reasons. They're out of the book business for a few months, but don't worry about it. If you want my book, you can go to Amazon and get it on, on uh, ebook or which is Kindle on their model. Or you can go right now to Murder, Inc. by Jerry with a G dot com. It'll take you to the Barnes & Noble website link for my book, and you can have it in three days sent to you. Barnes & Noble is nothing more than the bookstore, and that's what they are. And they will ship that book out immediately to you in either paperback or hardback. And if you want to wait, we're going to have an Audible version for you in just a very few days, a few weeks, two to three weeks. I'll have the Audible out for you available everywhere you get your Audibles. And if you can't wait till the next podcast, I encourage you to go to Jerry on YouTube, Jerry with a G on YouTube.com. We drop two episodes every week of two or three minutes each of the latest that's happening, not just with the coronavirus, but with the whole area of safety. And I promised you before I go, I want to give you a little teaser from my new book, Murder, Inc. And I'll do this with you every podcast. This is called Your Life, Their Price Tag. In keeping with the theme of money, talks, profit over safety, not only are companies eager to cash in on their products' profits, but they've figured out how to convince government regulators who are supposed to look out for our safety that it's actually bad for business to spend a lot of money on safety. Ford Motor Company once hoodwinked a government agency, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, I mentioned earlier, NHTSA, which oversees all things cars and trucks, to place a value on human life. Get this. 
you're worth $200,000 dead, or if you're only seriously injured, you're worth a mere 67,000 bucks. That's right, folks. You're worth 200,000 bucks if you die and 67,000 if you get injured. The formula the auto industry uses is very simple. Andrew Yang loved this. Multiply the number of deaths and injuries caused by a hazardous condition times the above values, and then you compare that cost to the total to fix the problem. So you compare how much a problem is going to cost to fix with the cost of saving human lives. 200000 if you're dead, 67000 if you're injured. Let's figure it out. The case of the Ford Pinto, they had a rear-mounted engine which had a very bad habit of exploding with lots of flames when it was hit in the rear. Ford compared the cost to fix the hazard, which, folks, was 11 bucks a car. 11 bucks could have fixed those Pintos so they wouldn't explode in flames and kill people. Well, they had 12.5 million Pintos out there, so they multiplied 12.5 million times 11 bucks. That came up to $137,500,000. That's the cost. Now, what would the savings have been or the benefit? Well, they, 180 lives were lost. You multiply that times 200,000 bucks. And they had, uh, coincidentally, they had 180 serious injuries during this time period. So you multiply that 67,000 times 180. And you add the two together, you come up with $48,060,000, roughly a third of the cost that it would have cost them to fix it. Voila. Since it would cost three times the savings to fix it, Ford made, in their opinion, the wise business decision to save a ton of money. I doubt when the Harvard Business School teaches the future managers in America the value of conducting a cost-benefit analysis for making a sound business decision. I doubt that's what they had in mind. Well, that's what Ford did. It's cynical. It's wrong. It's profit over safety. And if you want to read more about that and other tips, go to buy my book, Murder, Inc., murderincbyjerry.com, and you can get over to Barnes & Noble and get it. Again, the YouTube is jerry on youtube.com. And next time, our podcast will bring you another exciting guest. And I'd like to remind you, friends, as we say goodbye until the next podcast of The Warnings Doctor, remember, friends, the more informed you are, the safer you'll be. And this is Dr. Jerry Goldhaber, The Warnings Doctor, saying goodbye to you just for now. Thank you for listening to The Warnings Doctor with Dr. Jerry Goldhaber, where you can always find a new prescription to keep you safe in an ever-evolving and sometimes more dangerous world. Remember, the more informed you are, the safer you'll be.